The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, and joined as always by caretaker of chickens, extractor of cider, and public money wonk Liz Farmer. Welcome back, Liz. Thanks, Justin. Always glad to be here. And uh, the fall colors in Maryland for anyone in driving distance um, are are absolutely beautiful this year. So uh, it's it's like a treat every time I get to drive around here. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. We, I think uh, here, here in the Midwest, and I had heard that kind of everywhere from here all the way, say to Boston, we had this kind of unseasonably warm thing uh, in the fall, which was great. So it kind of not only to have peak color, but really nice weather to go out and tour the peak color. And at least here in Chicago earlier this week, that just kind of ended with a thud. Well, suddenly one, one afternoon, <laughs> a system blew in. And it was uh, 48 and raining, and that that was it. I'm like, okay, now, uh, okay, now hold we on. are, yeah, closer <laughs> closer to winter than to fall all of a sudden. But it was nice while it lasted, no doubt. <laughs> so uh, today we're talking about property taxes, which is a, a a topic that is, of course, central to state and local public money because so much of public money at the state and local level comes from property taxes. But also always a touchy subject. The property tax is often called uh, the the most hated tax or the worst tax, depending on on who you talk to. And of course, a big reason for that is it's it's one of the most visible taxes, right? It's not not always clear when someone is paying a sales tax when they go out uh, to be at a restaurant. It's not always clear if you're paying a lodging tax when you stay at a hotel. Uh, but when you get a property tax bill or when your escrow statement for your mortgage makes very clear what you're paying in property taxes, it becomes a very visible form of taxation and often very large numbers and sometimes very large lump sum numbers. And so that makes it a a particularly unpopular source. So we have this kind of love-hate relationship with the property tax in state and local public money. We, We depend on it a lot and yet it's really politically unpopular. So it gets a lot of attention for both of those reasons. So we want to talk about that today and we're going to have uh, as our guest, Professor Chris Berry from the University of Chicago, who's done some really path-breaking work on the property tax assessment process, which is a kind of part technical, but also very political process. And and one that has, uh, his research has really shown all sorts of interesting ways that we might think differently about how to improve the fairness and equity of the property tax, which might have something to do with uh, making it a little bit more palatable. Interesting discussion with him. To set that up, Liz, let's let's talk a little bit about property taxes in general. And you've uh, done some some recent reporting 
on this, especially thinking about where we are and where we're likely to find ourselves in the economy as it's shifting underneath us and, and what all that means for property taxes. We've talked a little bit about uh, some of your recent work here. Yeah, so anytime the housing market starts uh, looking like it's taking a hit, the the first question for for you know people like us is, well, what will that affect the property tax collection in in a couple of years? Um, <clears throat> you know, and obviously we don't we don't exactly know what's what's going to happen, but there are a few factors that are likely to to play into that for local governments and. Um, one of them is just is how closely correlated a, um, a local government's revenue tax revenue is to the, the housing market. Um, I spoke with some folks at Fitch Ratings, and they had recently done this report that looked at that, looked at local government uh, property tax revenues, and then kind of organized it by state, and found that uh, local governments in Florida actually their property tax revenues correlate the most consistently with the you know waves of the housing market, which I thought was super interesting. Virginia is another state where it does. Um, on the other hand, Maryland, where I live, <laughs> um, has one of the weakest relationships with local property tax revenues. Uh, and so, and thinking about uh, you know our annual property property tax bills, yeah, makes sense. Um, you know, no, uh, local governments in Nebraska and Minnesota also have a weak correlation with uh, their pro local property tax revenues and and the housing market. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, it, it, as as everybody says, right? Uh, it's real estate is is local, so it depends on where you live. The other thing that may or may not affect what goes on in a couple of years as local governments collect their property tax revenues is political will. And and I spoke with Chris Berry about this for the story, and he talked about how in Chicago, um, a couple of years ago, they'd passed a measure essentially tying the uh, property tax revenue cap growth, um, allowing it to, to inflation um, up to an annual, you know, growth rate of, of 5%, you know, all fine and well, probably didn't. And I think this is the first year it actually went into effect anyway, but certainly at the time when inflation was not really a thing and interest rates were super low, um, not very controversial, I imagine at the time, but now that they're, this is the first year it goes into effect. Yeah. Uh, with inflation at pushing 9%, that's, it's, it could be a big deal. Um, and so even though the mayor is, you know, within her total right, and she did uh, initially attempt to raise that property tax uh, revenue uh, limit, I think ultimately, ultimately, she ended up scrapping the whole thing, and and property tax revenues are going to stay the same. Um, and I guess the the city will get that money elsewhere. And so uh, that that's another thing, right? Like po politicians don't want to be seen, air quotes, raising taxes, and it's really raising tax bills, not the tax rate. Um, you know, in a time of when people are really really feeling it. Yeah, the political optics with this are always tricky because. It's such a complex set of factors that affect what you ultimately pay, right? You have the assessment, you have the rate, you have uh, whether these whether assessments and rates are keeping pace with sort of legal limits or not. I mean, there's all of these moving parts, and so it's it's not all that difficult in many cases for elected officials to to say that they are capping taxes or holding the line on taxes or even cutting property taxes when all they're really doing is not changing anything about the existing system and, you, and you're simply seeing assessments not keep pace. So you're simply seeing the rate that could increase, not increase or whatever it might be. And so, and I think a lot of people 
you know, sometimes there's, and there's lots of research on this suggesting that they, they sort of understand what that means and they sort of understand what factors affect the the ultimate property tax bill that they pay and then a lot of research saying that they that, that, that they really don't and the other piece that we that we haven't talked about is the added layer of complexity then when you have multiple property taxing jurisdictions all piling into the same property tax bill and so yeah. you may have a you may have a certain rate for the city, a different rate for the schools, a different rate for your local community college district, a different rate for all of these different jurisdictions that get kind of stacked up into one big property tax bill that people may or may not fully appreciate all of the different types of jurisdictions that they're paying property taxes to, even though the bill is coming from the county or even though the city is the most visible portion of that property tax bill or whatever it might be. So that just adds to the, you know, further to the complexity around understanding exactly how the system works and how, how taxpayers contribute to it. Yeah, it is. Um, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's uh, for something that is so important and particularly, you know, as in a previous episode, when we talk about public school funding for something that is so important for it to be so convoluted <laughs> is I feel like there, that needs to be fixed. And and it is controversial. Uh, people don't like it. They pay it. They don't like it. Um, also, and I know there's research has shown that when you're property tax payments are folded into your annual annual mortgage payments. So that whole like mortgage plus escrow plus home insurance, it's it doesn't make it necessarily invisible, but it makes it a lot more palatable for people. They don't hate the property tax maybe as much as as those who get that bill twice a year and have to pay it twice a year. Definitely, definitely. And yet, and, and other research too showing that there's something that makes the property tax more palatable if there's an understanding of exactly what it's being spent on, right? And that seems to be one of the issues yeah. too. Is there's, especially with schools, the sense that we, you know, you, you pay more and more into it every year, and it's not quite clear what the return on that investment might be. You have seen in in a lot of jurisdictions, and including in Chicagoland, like you had mentioned, where a big chunk of the property taxes earmarked for things like pensions. And we can debate all day the, the political popularity of of having to pay, make those pension contributions in the first place, which are incredibly controversial for some. But there, there's definitely some work that's shown that people aren't necessarily excited about paying more property taxes, but they are a little bit, you know, less anxious about paying more if they know that it's that it's being immediately earmarked for a specific purpose. And so we see those what are in many jurisdictions called uh, kind of truth and taxation laws that make clear to taxpayers what they're getting for their property taxes. And that seems to, to make a little bit of a difference with respect to you know, willingness to pay. So that, because it's already a complex system, at least if there's some sense of what you get for it at the end, that can make it a little bit more, uh, you know, a, a little more tolerable for some. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Well, we are fortunate to have here on the Public Money Pod today an extra special guest. Of course, all our guests are special, but we have an extra special guest with us today, Professor Chris Berry from the University of Chicago, uh, who happens to direct the Center for Municipal Finance, which of course is the home base for the Public Money Pod. We appreciate uh, all of his support and in us being able to do what we do here on the pod. Uh, but we're here today to talk about his research on property taxes, and in particular, the property tax assessment process, which at some level is kind of a wonky thing, but also has all kinds of important, much broader implications that we will 
get into with him here today. His work has been widely cited in this space and picked up by the New York Times, lots of network news, all sorts of important news outlets because it's been very, very high impact. So we're really, really pleased to have Professor Chris Berry with us here on the pod. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's my uh, pleasure and honor to be here. Chris, I've, I've uh, personally found your research incredibly helpful in my in my reporting as well, um, at particularly looking at the difference in in Baltimore and the Maryland counties in terms of property tax equity. And, and I'm sure that's because I live in Maryland, but I'm sure that's true for everyone across the, the country who's looking at this data. Um, I'm hoping you can just kind of start in general for those who aren't familiar with your research and just tell tell us a little bit about you know what is property tax and equity how you know and and what are the factors that play into it yeah i'd be happy to and and even a lot of people who are who are specialists in property taxes don't think a lot about the assessment part of the process and so it is worth a little introduction there. So the property tax is an ad valorem tax, as any textbook will tell you, meaning that the tax should be proportional to the value. But the kind of dirty little secret of property taxes is we don't really know the value. Uh, It has to be estimated. In contrast to say something like a sales tax, which is also an ad valorem tax, well, we levy that tax at the time of the purchase. So there's really no dispute about what the price is. If you spend $1,000 on a TV, you pay your whatever, 5% tax on that. But for a home which doesn't sell very frequently, uh, we don't know exactly what it's worth. Nobody really does. And so we have an army of local assessors whose job is to figure that out. And essentially what I have found is that there is systematic bias in their estimates. And it is a bias of a particular form. You know, we wouldn't necessarily be as troubled if they were making random errors. We, ex- we expect you know, random errors in any kind of estimation process, but these are not random errors. They're, they're quite systematic errors in which the lower priced properties in any jurisdiction tend to be assessed at more than what they're actually worth, while the higher priced properties are assessed at less than what they're actually worth. That kind of imbalance is what we label regressivity, uh, and it's just pervasive uh, throughout jurisdictions in the United States. And so, so by consequence, because of that, those who own lower prop, lower value property taxes end up paying, you know, substantially more, you know, comparatively in in property taxes compared with those who have higher value properties. That's right. It, what it, what, is, what the result is going to be is that people that own the lower priced homes are going to pay an, a higher effective property tax rate. So the property tax rate again, as a sort of an ad valorem tax is meant to be an equal tax rate across homes, regardless of their value. But because of these inequities in the way they're assessed, what it means is that the lower price properties are paying a higher uh, tax rate as a proportion of the true value of the home and the high priced uh, properties are paying uh, less, a lower tax rate. Essentially, that's a tax shift. What we're doing is shifting taxes that should be paid by the highest priced homes onto the lower priced homes. What explains that that systematic bias? Is it sort of technical factors or data or political factors, all the above? At the heart of the problem, uh, the easiest way to, to think about it is that what assessors end up doing is some kind of averaging. Even our most elaborate statistical models are at the end of the day, some sort of a conditional average. So uh, the simplest way to think about it is if I were as an assessor to to value every home as if it were the average home, what would the consequence of that be? Well, above average homes would be assessed too little and below average homes would be assessed too much. So that's pretty clear if you just think about what the, it, valuing everything at the average. 
And, you know, we can get as much into it as you want the technicalities, but as they begin to do statistical modeling, they can do better and better by knowing some features of homes, but they're still doing conditional averages. So that might be, well, I can assess you at the average for a two bedroom, 1200 square foot condo, but we still know for two bedroom, 1200 square foot condos, there's gonna be quite a lot of variation and those that are worth more than average, again, are, are undervalued and those that would be worth less are overvalued. So that's the root of the problem. And you mentioned the data side as well. If we had perfect data on all the attributes of all the properties, then they should be able to fix this problem because then we can really get you down to the average of other homes that are exactly the same as yours. And that average should actually be fair. But because for a variety of reasons, assessors have you know, extremely imperfect data, there's always these leftover factors that the assessor uh, doesn't see or doesn't know about. And that's inevitably going to lead to this kind of uh, movement towards an average, which is going to inherently uh, result in regressive assessment. Can you give us some examples of what some of those reasons might be for having some of those differences in data? So obviously all data are imperfect. And so, so even a well-functioning assessment system, we expect to have some imperfect uh, data, but uh, the two categories of things that I think are most important. First, due to a variety of sort of legal principles that have been adopted in the US, assessors are generally not allowed to enter a person's home in order to do inspections and, and, and observe its quality. Uh, the constitutional protection against, against search and seizure has been applied here to say that, no, the assessor can't just come into your home without your permission. And because of that, most assessors just don't even, even try to do that kind of internal inspection. And so they're going to be missing out on lots of factors internal to the home and so you can imagine two homes, uh, even homes next to each other, and, and maybe back in the day, they were even built by the same developer and, and were the same home. Uh, but over the course of time, if one person has invested a lot and made improvements and has a beautiful chef's kitchen and a great you know, spa bathroom, you know, that home's gonna be worth a lot more than the home next to it, which perhaps their owner has let it fall into disrepair. It's gonna be hard for the assessor to see that since they can't enter the home, but of course, a potential buyer would obviously enter the home and know this. And so those sort of internal features are, are gonna be one obvious category of bad data for the assessor. Uh, other things that I would say is not necessarily a problem of bad data, but more of bad modeling is, at least based on you know, what I'm seeing in the data, assessors are not doing a great job at modeling what, what most people would say is the number one factor in real estate, which is location, location, location. And what I see systematically is just assessors not getting that right, uh, meaning that that whole clusters of homes that are spatially proximate to one another are either being over or under assessed, which is a sign that they really haven't gotten the local market variations right. So uh, a combination of data problems and then modeling problems that, that, that compound one another to, to produce these kinds of, of inequities. So Chris, you had mentioned that a, a lot of these assessment techniques are, are kind of based on averages and averages can be unknowable or, or tricky. Go into a little bit more detail about that, right? I can imagine that um, other kinds of taxes that we might be a little bit more familiar with might be a, a useful comparison here in thinking about how property taxes are collected. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about that, what it means to, to depend on the average and why that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yes. So... One kind of tax that most people are, are, are very familiar with is the income tax. And so I often tell people like, let's imagine for a minute that we tried to do property taxes 
or sorry, rather we tried to do income taxes the way we do property taxes. So how would that work? Well, at the end of the year, instead of you submitting a tax form to the IRS telling them what you made or your employer submitting a statement of your earnings, and you don't submit to them anything, you just receive a tax bill from the IRS at the end of the year that says, hey, we think you made this amount of money, pay us the taxes on that amount. Now, for most people, just that very idea would sound crazy. I mean, I'm not going to send anything to the IRS. And at the end of the year, they're just going to send me a statement of how much I made based on no information they receive from me or my employer. And I'm going to have to pay whatever tax is implied by that. Well, that's exactly how we do property taxes. And so, but let's think, think a little further. Well, how could the IRS possibly do this? Well, at best, they could know some basic features about you. So maybe they know you're a you're a 34-year-old architect. They could look in their data that they have for only a small fraction of the population and say, well, the average 34-year-old architect makes some amount of money. So you're a 34-year-old architect here. Your tax bill, we say you've earned the average amount, pay us those taxes. Well, of course, amongst 34-year-old architects, there's probably some making five times the average and others making a small fraction of the average and, and you can see that then the, the, the big earners are going to be uh, uh, undertaxed and the, those with less will be overtaxed. But that kind of problem of averaging is always there. And, you know, you could imagine the IRS getting a little bit better if they knew not only that you're a 34 year old architect, but, you know, how long you'd been in the industry or what school you went to. They could do a little bit better, but still there's going to be huge variation amongst people with the same schooling and the same experience. I think people would be stunned and, and, and would, would revolt if, if we started doing this with income taxes. But because it's always been done this way in property taxes, people just take it for granted and get this statement of what their home is worth and write a massive check every year. So, Chris, how does uh, property tax equity translate into dollar figures? What kind of difference are we talking about? Yeah, the dollars really add up. And uh, let's just start by thinking from an individual homeowner and then let's aggregate that up to the systematic inequity. So an individual owner might be based on, based on my, my estimates, the average person sort of, let's say at the, at the bottom end uh, with a low price home might be paying anywhere from 20 to 25% too much in property taxes. And we know that property taxes are after your mortgage, the property taxes are the, are the biggest a price of, of ownership of a home. And certainly over the course of time, they become even, even larger, perhaps bigger than your mortgage payment at some point. So if you're paying 20 to 25% too much on a low priced home, that's really quite a lot and can certainly affect your ability to, to, to purchase a home and to stay in, in a home. Uh, so that's from an individual homeowner's perspective. System-wide, now we'll start to aggregate that up across thousands of homes. And of course, homes uh, are very expensive and, and uh, property taxes are a pretty big expense for most people. So I estimate that in Chicago, over the tenure of our last assessor, the four-year period, uh, there was about $2 billion in taxes that were shifted off of the top 10% of homes onto the bottom 90%. Uh, so a massive tax wow. shift there in New York. Uh, again, which is a bigger and more valuable market, I estimate that it's about a billion dollars a year uh, in tax liabilities shifted from the top 10% onto everybody else. So this is real money, both for an individual uh, owner and also system-wide. It's, it's a major wealth shift that is taking place, wow. shifting wealth out of the lowest uh, income communities. Makes a lot of sense. So then you know, in your work, you've, you've documented the effect that all of these factors can have on that systematic bias. Can you talk a little bit then about what what has been or what can be done to, to try to correct some of that bias? 
Yes. Let's start with what, what, what assessors will tell you is it can, can correct it and then, and then maybe uh, what can work. So one of the common things you'll hear from assessors when presented with this kind of evidence is, well, if people have been treated unfairly, they should just appeal and, and that the system kind of has its own remedy built in. However, what we see when we look at the data is that appeals actually, rather than fixing the problem, tend to make it worse. And the reason is that there's a bias in who appeals. It's not generally the people who are most overassessed uh, who will appeal because the most overassessed properties are the lowest valued properties. For a variety of reasons, the people who own those homes are less likely to appeal. Whereas more affluent people who own the expensive homes are more likely to appeal even if they haven't been egregiously overassessed. And so what we see in the data is that actually after appeals take place, the system is even more regressive. So that sort of fix is what uh, cure worse than the disease. But your question as to, well, what could fix this? As with any kind of estimation process, I mean, you know, is you got to be have either better data or better models, and ideally both. And so the places that we have seen that have made substantial improvements, and there, there aren't a lot of them, uh, but what they've done is to start by collecting better data and then producing better models. And those two things together can make big improvements. So your work, uh, Professor Barry, has has looked at lots of different jurisdictions, obviously in Cook County and greater Chicago, but you've also looked at New York City, you've also looked at Detroit, you've looked at lots of other places. And when you look at the types of you know, changes or solutions that have been implemented or or started to be implemented. I wonder if you could just talk about some of that variation that you that you've seen in the way that these efforts have been have been taken about by certain kinds of jurisdictions. And to the extent that you mentioned that political will, you did how much does that seem to vary from from one place to the next? Is there maybe more willingness on the part of assessors or other elected officials to to attack this problem uh, the way that you've framed it? Yeah, let's, so let's start with that question of political will, because I think everything else flows from that. And I think that I'll come back to talking about Philadelphia and Chicago, which are a couple of places where there has been some political will and, and some actual reform. But I think the more common uh, situation is one where not only is there not a political will to fix it, there's a pretty strong political will to deny the issue. And Detroit would be a great example there, where when confronted with evidence of uh, just very uh, compelling evidence of, of inequities in property taxation, both the mayor and the assessor, you know, consistently deny that there's any kind of problem. And in uh, Cook County, which is, again, one of the worst in the, in the country historically, the, uh, the former assessor's initial response was, well, just to deny the system is great, there's no problems. And that's the kind of response you, you see in most places, New York as well. So the political will has to come somewhere, either from the voters or from the higher level politicians. And assessors, broadly speaking, about half of the country, there's two different ways to, to choose an assessor and about half the country does it each way. So in some situations, an assessor is elected. In other cases, the assessor is appointed. And with an elected assessor, you know, that political will ultimately has to come from the voters. The voters have to decide, hey, we're not going to reelect this person doing a bad job. We're going to we're going to put somebody into place who's doing a good job. And Chicago is an example of a place, place where that happened. Or I guess I should say Cook County, which is the larger jurisdiction uh, the level at which the assessors elected. So that was a political will on the part of the voters to demand reform. Uh, in Philadelphia, the leadership, which is not an elected assessor, 
is appointed, and that, that, that political leadership came from the mayor, Mayor Michael Nutter, uh, during his tenure. So I think it, the, the will can come from the voters, the will can come from the politicians, but it, it's unlikely, at least in my experience, experience, to come from the assessor directly uh, without either of those two uh, starting points. So that would be the first precondition towards anything happening. And then I think you're asking, well, okay, let's suppose there's the political will and, and you know, we've got an assessor's office charged with fixing the problem, what can they do? I think the two cases I would point to of, I think, successful reforms were, would be Philadelphia under, under Michael Nutter, which they started something called the Real Value Initiative uh, in around 2014, I believe it was, um, which resulted in major changes. And then most recently here in Cook County, again, the voters booted out our old and frankly corrupt uh, and horrible assessor, Joe Berrios, to put in a reformer for Kagi. And Kagi has been in office, you know, he's been nearing the end of his first term and has finished really his, at this point, this first round of assessments. And what I see in both cases is first collection of new data. Uh, oftentimes the, you know, the assessors begin their data with when at the time a home is constructed, sorry, constructed, they'll they'll have some data about well, you know what, how many square feet did it have, how many bedrooms did it have, what material was it built from, but in, particularly in older cities, that might have been a hundred years ago, and so they've got to go back and update the data, which could be a combination of you know windshield type surveys. Uh, as I said, they can't go into the home, uh, but windshield type surveys, more innovative. Uh, assessors are using something, say, like Google Street View. There's been some evidence showing that that can actually yield pretty good data. There's increasing numbers of data vendors that will sell various things. Some assessors are using even satellite imagery to detect additions put onto a house that might not have been used. You'd be surprised that some assessors don't even directly have access to building permit data, so they may not even know uh, when some of these things have happened. So I would say part one is just that, that better quality data Secondly, we'll be on the modeling side and in, in Cook County, for instance, they hired a, a young group of data scientists who are trained in, with you know, computer science backgrounds and they brought machine learning tools to bear and saw a lot of improvements through more sophisticated modeling. Again, a lot of assessors are using some form of more simple uh, comparables, just finding some comparable properties, uh, but of course, uh, there's a lot of room for error in defining what a comparable property is and, and we're finding that a machine learning approach can lead to substantial improvement. So between the better data and the better, um, higher quality modeling, you can make a, a lot of headway on these problems. After these reforms, I know it's only been a few years in, in uh, Cook County, but what are some of the results so far in that, in terms of you know getting to that, that equity? I'm so glad you asked that because this is uh, hot off the presses. Some of my you know, most recent research and not, and not even uh, released publicly yet, but I'd be happy to talk about the preliminary findings because as I said, the, the assessor has, uh, has just finished sort of the first complete reassessment of the, of the entire county at this point. And just within the last couple of months released that data and I've had a chance to look at it. And the results are extremely impressive. The regressivity is, if not completely gone, reduced very substantially, uh, maybe a few pockets of the city left where some improvements can still be seen, but uh, certainly bringing almost all of the standard statistics on regressivity back into an acceptable range and uh, removing the most egregious kind of overassessment. So it's not uncommon in many jurisdictions that, that, that the lower price properties are assessed at 25, 40 percent more than what they're worth. Really, really uh, extreme. And, uh, and that's almost entirely gone 
um, in Cook County now. So the initial results are extremely encouraging. Uh, they still have to go through a uh, process of review and appeal. And, and as I said, often that appeal process will, will add some regressivity to the system. So it might be at the end of the day, uh, the results are not quite as rosy as I'm, I'm seeing them now, but that would be not due to a fault in the assessor, but due to an appeals process. So I think the key, my key takeaway is when the assessor's office has hired talented people and put uh, resources into fixing the system, there's great progress that can be made. And I'm really impressed with what, what I'm seeing thus far. And where, where was Cook County before on, on this, on the regressivity? Uh, Cook County was, was certainly one of the worst uh, big jurisdictions in the country. And, uh, you know, all the standard statistics showed a great deal of, um, of regressivity. And it, it, you know, Cook County, of course, has its own perversities, which I hope are not typical elsewhere. But, you know, the, we, we have an extremely, ro uh, maybe robust, might be a fair description, appeals process. We, Cook County processes over 300,000 appeals a year, vastly more than, than any other jurisdiction in the country. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's an army of tax lawyers who work on contingency fees to reduce your taxes. And many in Chicago do that uh, almost automatically without even looking you know, at their bill. They'll, they'll initiate an, an appeal just because that's the sort of system we have. And, and perhaps unsurprisingly, those tax lawyers are historically some of the biggest donors to the elected assessor and the Board of Review is also elected and, and, and oversees the appeals process. So we have our own, our own perversities here that certainly have made our system over the years uh, worse. And still that is ridiculously impressive that basically in, in an, one assessment cycle, you can essentially fix that as, as much as, as one would expect it to be fixed. Yeah, it's, it's surprising. Uh, I was really shocked when I saw the quality of the assessments coming out. I thought it was much longer. Um, this is not to say that that there aren't improvements yet to be made, but in terms of the, right. the amount of improvements you could see in, in one round of, of reassessment uh, is quite impressive. Definitely. I wonder if we could look ahead just a little bit. You know, we're going into a very different environment now, one where we'll see a lot more inflation and one where there's a probably better than outside chance that we'll see different kinds of fluctuations in property values, right? Everything that we've been talking about so far has kind of been predicated on the idea that property values are stable or improving. Uh, does any of this change or does your, does your view on any of this change you know, if we find ourselves in, a, in an era of stagnant or maybe even declining property values? I think it's worrisome uh, because perhaps the best precedent to look at is the, the Great Recession, the last uh, housing market bust say 2007 onward. And what we saw during that period was that regressivity got a lot worse. And the reason is, you know, when you have housing values begin to decline, they often will decline in, at different rates across different parts of the city. And typically, you know, the, the less valuable neighborhoods are hit worse by housing market declines. And whenever values are declining, if you hold assessments constant, everyone's going to ultimately be overassessed. But if they're not declining equally for everyone, and particularly say lower valued homes are declining fast and higher, higher valued homes are declining slowly, but you hold everyone's assessments the same, then regressivity is just going to get worse. The, the lower valued homes are moving lower and 
below, even further below the already too high assessed values. That's what we saw happen in the housing crisis, uh, the Great Recession, and that was very clear regressivity. Even in jurisdictions that were otherwise not the most regressive, regressivity got worse, and that was true almost everywhere. So I guess that would be my first concern. We don't know exactly what the housing market is going to look like over the next couple of years if we are going to experience some kind of a, a housing bust, and we don't know if it'll be the same kind. But if it is, then I think there's good reason to be worried that we'll see regressivity getting getting much worse during that period. And it's just a general problem that assessors are sort of slow to catch up with changes in price. It just tends to take them a few years. Uh, it's much easier in a, when a market is kind of steadily increasing at a roughly you know, uh, normal amount year over year. But when there's a big break in that trend, they're just slow to keep up with it. And that's not necessarily their fault. They have to wait there until the data that they use keep up with it. And so there's just going to be a natural uh, lag there. Is that even true in places where they assess annually? Yes. Even where they assess annually, you'll see this problem just because the, the, let's say, let's say we're sitting here in, in 2022, the assessor's working with at best data from 2021, uh, right? They only can work with the data that's, you know, they, they wait for the sale transactions to take place and be recorded and to appear in their data. So there's always going to be a bit of a, a lag for those reasons. And typically, you know, an assessor might work with the prior three to five years of data. And so if I'm working with the prior three to five years data sitting here in 2022, I might be working with data that's at most from 2021, but possibly from 2018. Uh, and, and so mm. that's just the, the nature of the beast. I mean, it's, that's it, not really a flaw in, in what assessors are doing. It's just a constraint that they, that they face in terms of when data become available and Again, I, I do think that machine learning techniques might help them do a better job at anticipating those trends and, and modeling them, detecting that signal in the data earlier than the way it, simpler kind of models that I've seen a lot of assessors using, which are just something more like an average over the last few months. Or, uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful that, we, that this is an area in which assessors can improve, but the, the data constraint is real. Well, Professor Chris Berry, thanks so much for taking the time. Really great insights. Wonderful to hear about all the exciting research that you're doing. And uh, again, thanks as always for all your support of the Public Money Pod. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled with your new podcast, and it's going to be a great service to the to the whole field. And I hope people will, will listen to this and every other episode you do. Thanks, Chris. Well, thanks again to Professor Chris Berry for taking the time to join us here on the pod. Wonderful discussion, really interesting research. And of course, it's always great to be able to lean on our friends for uh, lots of great content here at the pod. So it's time now for extra credit. This is our segment where we answer your audience questions. And uh, this week's question has to do with property tax limits. Hey guys, Scott here from Chicago. Yes, that's Chicago. I was wondering if you could go into a little more detail about California's Proposition 13. Specifically, what exactly is it, and whether other states have similar policies? Well, that is an 
excellent question and and certainly consistent with a lot of what we've talked about so far on this episode you know the the politics of the property tax and and the way that voter perceptions of the property tax really shape the way that policy is made and way and the way that that policy is implemented really really important to take account of that political environment so uh, when we think about measures like prop 13 proposition 13 in california and there's a whole similar uh, array of measures that we see in in other states, Colorado, Washington State, Arizona, uh, Massachusetts, all have their, their own version of property tax limits that have been imposed as a result of voter initiatives. And a lot of these grew out of the, in the same sort of common era, right, in the mid to late 70s, especially in the really rapidly growing parts of the country, like California, you saw... Uh, property values increasing very quickly, and in turn, property taxes increasing very quickly to the point that a lot of homeowners felt like they they were being priced out of their homes. They felt like the property taxes were increasing so fast that they were unable to keep pace, and it made home ownership very difficult for them. And there's been some evidence to show that that was happening, and some evidence to show that that wasn't necessarily happening. It was it was more of a political. A feeling or a or a, a political uh, sense rather than a, than an empirical reality, but nonetheless, that view that property taxes were out of control and needed to be reined in was the genesis for many statewide ballot initiatives that imposed all sorts of property tax caps, and they they take different forms. In some states, the the law simply says, as part of a what we would call tax and expenditure limit or tell. There are tells that will cap the rate at which just property tax collections can grow. So there's they can only grow by a certain amount uh, year over year in terms of the, just the dollar amount collected. There's some that cap the rate. There's some that cap both the rate and the growth in property tax collections. They take all sorts of different forms, and some are much more restrictive than others. A lot of them that have been imposed recently allow for property taxes to grow with respect to new construction. So there might be an existing property tax cap on properties that are are in the system now, but properties that have been recently built, new construction that's coming online is maybe not subject to that same cap. And that can provide for communities that are growing and have infrastructure needs to support that growth. It allows for some additional property taxes to be collected to, to build out that infrastructure. There's also a variety of workarounds in places that have property tax limits that will allow for special assessments and other kinds of targeted property tax assessments, again, usually to support specific types of infrastructure in specific types of places, just because the property tax caps that are in place on all properties can make it difficult to finance the kinds of infrastructure growth that needs to happen. So it's a it's a really interesting, it takes these these, uh, citizen approved or voter approved tax and expenditure limitations take an already complex system and add an additional layer of complexity. Now, Liz, as a as a California native uh, and someone who has looked at property tax limits at uh, different points in time, uh, tell us about your experience in in studying these issues and and kind of where you know, what you've seen, where you think it's going from here. You know, it amazes me always how um, you know once these these limits are in place, uh, particularly with the property tax, it is really hard to, to change anything about them and much less remove them entirely. And you know, there were several attempts, you know, when I was you know, growing up in California to, to do something about Prop 13, they all failed. Uh, I recently <laughs> wrote about the, <laughs> about the latest attempt, <clears throat> and this was back in 2020. Uh, so this was Proposition 
15. I kind of feel like they could have made it a little, you know, farther apart from 13 because <laughs> it's really easy to get those confused. Um, and this essentially, so we, it, it set aside the residential. We don't want to bother them, but it focused on commercial properties, which are assessed very rarely because they very rarely change hands and and everywhere, including Cal in California, that tends to shift the um, the property tax base more towards residential and away from commercial, even if values you know on any given day might might be different. So in California, this profit fifteen targeted resident or sorry commercial and mandated essentially that they all be reassessed at market value and be taxed as such. The assessors in California almost revolted. A lot of them came out against it. Uh, a couple of them wrote this, uh, you know, teamed up for an op-ed against it, uh, basically saying that this would essentially upend their jobs. They did not have the capacity to do this. There's no way that this would be feasible. You know, that plus millions of dollars, um, you know, on both sides of this this campaign, it was well covered, uh, even outside of California. Uh, it's really because it's really hard to get these measures on the ballot that challenge Prop 13. Um, ultimately, this one also didn't pass. And so it just shows how difficult it is to change these things once they are in place. I mean, this was on the commercial side, not on on residential, not changing anything about uh, people's tax bills on their homes. And these, as we mentioned earlier, a lot of these uh, measures were passed in the late 70s, 80s, some of them even the early 90s. But this is still in a very much an ongoing issue. I was reminded of, a, of an incident last year in Idaho in which, you know, as probably our listeners know a lot there's Idaho has gone nuts as of late with population growth with home prices skyrocketing and, and therefore tax property tax bills going up as well the legislature there in 2021 saw all of this going on in local governments and and decided to, <laughs> to pass what they called tax relief uh, but really what it ultimately has done is 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 kind of handcuff a lot of local officials and what they did is they've imposed kind of a greater limitation on property tax revenue growth than there already was on the localities there and and the real kicker for local officials was that the cap included new development so officials could no longer kind of get back the revenue from that new construction that they needed to pay for services to that area. So very much an ongoing issue in Idaho and elsewhere. Yeah, undoubtedly. It, yeah, it's fascinating to see that almost that exact same dynamic play out. And again, I, I had heard about the Idaho dynamic too. And, and what's interesting there too is it's, it's probably not a coincidence that there and other places new construction is subject to that cap. The message that's being sent very clearly is uh, we're not necessarily in favor of the kind of development that's happening. So you as a local government, uh, we're not saying as, as a state, we're not saying discourage it, but we are saying you're not going to be rewarded for it in the form of more robust property tax collections. And I think the message there um, is pretty clear. And that so there, there was some of that in, in California back in the day, but it's the the underlying message, I think, in a lot of jurisdictions that are imposing those kinds of limits is very clear. And uh, yeah, fascinating to see uh, the more things change, right? Um, so we'll see you know, where, where this goes from here. But uh, as always, property taxes, a politically charged, uh, emotional, very visible issue, but also one that's full of complexity. And so when you have 
something interesting and emotionally charged, but also complex. That's exactly the sort of thing we like to talk about here at the Public Money Pod. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.